I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service at Ananda Village. I'm Nayaswami Parvati, and this is Nayaswami Pranaba. And we'd like to welcome you all, especially our guests and visitors, here for the first time. I'll read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. These are commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. The topic this week, By Thinking Can We Arrive at Understanding? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. There are many places in the Gospels where we see Jesus in open conflict with the Pharisees, that is to say, with man-made as opposed to true mystical tradition. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 15, we see a good example of how they and he locked horns. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem came and asked Jesus, Why do your disciples break our ancient tradition and eat their food without washing their hands properly first? Jesus, after scolding them for their hypocrisy, in observing lesser rules so carefully while ignoring the much more important ones, said, Listen and understand this thoroughly. It is not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him common or unclean. It is what comes out of a man's mouth that makes him unclean. It wasn't that Jesus counseled against such wholesome practices as washing one's hands before eating. In an age, however, when lesser rules were given too much importance relative to the truly important observances, cleansing the heart of impure desires, for example, he emphasized the supreme importance of loving God and of communing with him. The Pharisees, the orthodox religionists of his day, in other words, had brought true religion down to a level of intellectual hair-splitting. They mistakenly considered the way to understanding to be through a minefield of definitions which they tried to refine to ultimate exactitude. Jesus taught, however, that the intellect alone can never lead one to truth. Without love, indeed, there is no ultimate verity. Without fixity of purpose, born of the heart's devotion, the intellect wanders endlessly. It cannot settle for long on anything. As the Bhagavad Gita says in the second chapter, the intellects of those who lack fixity of spiritual purpose are inconstant, their interests endlessly ramified. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. from Paramahansa Yogananda's book of Answered Prayers, of Prayer Demands, Whispers from Eternity. O Divine Mother, 
we lay eagerly at thy feet all the fresh-cut flowers of our devotion. Our humble prayer to thee is this. Convert the little altar of our united hearts into the blazing light of thy omnipresence. Divine Mother, be thou the only love of our souls. Ignite our damp wood of earthliness with the flame of infinity. Let the torch of our own devotion blaze in the dark forest of our indifference, restlessness, and ignorance. Inflame our minds with thy thoughts, our hearts with thy love, our souls with thy eternal joy. So these readings today are an encouragement to us to shift from being the outside looking in to being at the center and expressing that centeredness through everything we do and we are. And what it means is that true understanding, as it's pointing out, comes from our soul, our hearts, and indeed our minds as well. Our minds are part of what we've been given as a gift from God to really see life in its completeness. But it has to come from those three things merging together. There's a story of a guru who offers a scholar, a scriptural scholar, uh, revelations that will far be greater than the consequence of any scripture that he studies. And the man who says, I'm, I'm happy, I'm eager to do this. And so the guru says to him, well, go out into the rain and turn your head upward and raise your arms and hands upward. And the next day, the scholar comes to the guru and says, well, I did what you asked me to do, and the water poured down the back of my neck, and I felt like a perfect fool. And the guru responded saying, well, that's a pretty good start for the first day. <laughs> Sometimes our approach is the revelation that we're seeking is from our mind. You know, we want this to happen or that to happen. And we're engaged in just a superficial uh, surface level of who we are in that experience. I was fortunate when I was 18 to begin my twice a day me daily meditation practice. And when I was in university, at the end of the semester, we had our exams. And the room that we had the exam in was as big as this and as, as many people as this in it, maybe 100 to 150 people. And I remember just feeling you could cut the tension with a knife before the exam started. Everyone was uptight and kind of caught by that challenge because it was a room full of people like that. And, uh, you know, the papers turn upside down and you're waiting there and it's like, you know, on the edge. And then they give the, the nod to start. And you've got a, a fixed time. You know, it's not like an open-ended time period. And I, I remember waiting before this happened, thinking intuitively, I think I'll do something different. And so when the time came to turn the paper over and start, I didn't do that. I just meditated. I just sat there and tuned in more. And one of the, um, the exam monitors came by and said, are you feeling all right? <laughs> of course, that's not what you do. You don't you know, stop the process. But I just meditated, and I meditated for about five minutes. And, um, and then I thought, you know, whatever happens at this point. Now, granted, I prepared a lot beforehand. It wasn't that I 
like Master was, Yogananda was able to do in the autobiography, not prepare for exams. Uh, unfortunately, I hadn't read the autobiography at that time. Um, but I prepared intensely for these exams. But at that point, I realized, you know, it really doesn't matter what happens. I'm only able to do the best I can. And if I can just be more centered, more relaxed, more focused, then the right thing will happen. And I did very, very well on all of the exams that I approached in that way. But it also brought me to the intuitive understanding that after the first year of university, I didn't want to go back. <laughs> it was interesting that I felt I had enjoyed the experience, did very well in, in all the classes I took, really dived into it, experienced what was there, really engaged with the professors, and uh, you know, really got to the point where I saw the benefit of it but didn't feel inclined to go further. And that was a, a big challenge, because my parents certainly didn't understand that, nor did all the people I was in school with understand that. But I thought, well, that's fine. I'm just going to uh, take some time and find something that I really want to do in life. And so, at that time, I was living in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, which, if you don't know, is in Canada. Uh, uh, the place that has open borders for people. Um, but, but what happened was that the government of Manitoba, I think it was maybe the government of Canada, was offering to uh, fund projects initiated and carried out by students, both high school and university students. And I thought, you know, I thought, well, what, what would that look like? So I just, again, tuned in, really tried to feel something that was inspiring to me. And I came out with this, this plan, which I fleshed out, was it was combining working with um, uh, challenging youth and developing an organic garden in the city, in the inner city with them. So this is back in, like, 1975, when organic gardening was not what it is now that everyone understands it. But I'd connected with some people, and I'd worked with children already in summer camps and things, and I thought this would be a perfect medium. And I fleshed it out, and I think uh, I, the project involved you know, hiring another three or four students as well. So it was, a, it was a huge project. And to my surprise, they accepted it. <laughs> Which kind of felt like, oh my God, <laughs> I have to actually do this. But then I thought, I could do this with God's help. Because I was meditating every day. And then what happened is that uh, the government changed its tune. And took away all these self-initiatives from students like myself. And plugged us into uh, other situations. And the situation that they offered to me was working with emotionally disturbed children in a home that involved, in the first part, just getting to know the kids uh, at the end of the school year, and then going out to a residential camp um, on one of the lakes up in Manitoba, where we just had them for the rest of the summer. <coughs> and because I'd done a lot of canoeing in my past, I was given that part of the job to do that. I'd never done it with children before. And and again, it was interesting. All these steps aren't on full because I was just trusting, hey, this is the right thing. Well, they, they sent me to canoe school. Uh, 
I don't know if, if you even know that there was such a thing as canoe school. <laughs> in Canada, they do have canoe schools, not the kayaking kind of thing, because that was just coming into to play at that time, but the, the longer, heavier canoes. And one of the things that they made us do was to take this, you know, 14-foot canoe by ourselves solo and spin on a dime. You know, without going backward forward. Uh, and what you did to do that is that you had to lean over so the gunwale, the side of the canoe, the top of the canoe on one side, was just at surface level of the water. And that would allow you to have less surface to spin on. If you had more surface, you would move back and forth too much. <laughs> this was in Canada, which is not like here in June. The water was freezing. It was probably like at around 38 degrees or something like that. And we were bundled. I mean, we were heavily clothed. And most of us went into the water. But I thought, was this success or failure? You know, it, was a very, it just dawned on me at the time when I did this that my point wasn't to perfect that. It was to perfect my skills of canoeing. And more importantly perfect those skills of canoeing so that I could help others, specifically these children I'd be working with. Now, they were never going to spin on a dime doing canoes. So that wasn't the point that I was going to teach them that. But the other thing that we had to do once we got dunked, of course, the canoe filled with water. And we had to empty that canoe without going to shore and get up into it again. It was like, whoa, they showed us once. You know, and it's like you, you got to realize how much water is in terms of weight and capacity, and and there it is. And so you you work with it, you tip it upside down, and then you push from one end so it elevates it up, gets all most of the water out, and then you quickly spin it and it comes out with some water in it, but you can canoe in it. While going into that water, that was about thirty-eight degrees. Hypothermia happens real fast when it's that cold. So they quickly got each of us that got dumped in the water out of the water. But I remember spending about two and a half hours under a hot shower <laughs> at that point. I mean, literally, just to really bring the balance of that temperature down. But I was thinking, you know, back on that, that really it just felt like this is an experience of opening up to possibilities. My understanding wasn't that I need to do this or do that. That was part of it, but it wasn't the totality of it. It was really coming into the experience of what was happening now, what was possible now. And as we know, the famous saying that it is in the season of success that we sow the seeds, seasons of failure that we sow the seeds of success. Well, true understanding is going to come just from the mind kind of working out the details of the problem so much. I mean, that goes a fair distance. It's an important part of the mix. But if we can just ease back from that and go to that understanding that comes from our heart involved, what's really important? The heart is able to tell us, to make us feel what's really important in our lives. And then our soul, of course, elevates it to the highest potential that we can have. There's an interesting story that I read of, um, of Yogananda, of one of his transcribed talks, where he talked about this idea of deepening understanding. And it's, he says that after 
some time of being in his guru's ashram, Swami Sri Chara's ashram, he felt the call to go visit his family. Um, and he explains it to Sri Chara as, my family is calling me and I feel their love. And you know what Sri Chara's response is? Better not go. You may not be able to come back because of that pull of familial warmth and love. And Yogananda responds saying, Nothing will deter me from what my life is really about, and that's being with you and finding God. But he does go. And immediately his father, on his return, sheds tears. And Yogananda writes or says that his father was not a man of emotions or affection. But he was so touched by Yogananda's return. He said, I, I, I am so deeply moved by your return to the family. And then he goes on to say, you must stay. <laughs> you must take the place of your elder brother, Ananta, who passed away in 1916. Because uh, who else will take care of your brother, younger brothers and sisters if I die? Pretty potent stuff. And Yogananda replies with, again, a deeper understanding. He said, but Father, who gave you the love that we share, our Father in Heaven? I must follow the highest duty here, because in following that highest duty, it will bring blessings and love more deeply to myself, but also to you and my brothers and sisters. And he says then, he leaves the family I forget the song, but a, a, a phrase from a song. I go now forward without looking back. And he doesn't look back because he knows the pull of that emotional tie is there. But it's, it's that understanding that comes not from the mind. The mind isn't going to really place that accurately or in, in the best way. But from the heart that feels what is real and the soul that takes it to that deepest level. Because obviously the, the, the tremendous compassion that Yogananda had for his family was evident. <coughs> that he was blessing them in the most profound way that he knew. Being a disciple, being a devotee of the divine. And so for all of us, that focus of devotion that's presented in the affirmation for today, the quality for this week, that's what allows us to really have knowledge, to have understanding. Because otherwise it's fleeting, even if we get it close to right, just from the mind. You know, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, it begins in the second sutra with the famous and most important sutra, Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices, the whirlpools, the eddies of feeling. And the whirlpools are called vrittis in Sanskrit. It means that there's a, an energy that draws it. It isn't just disturbing, but there's a magnetism energy that draws it into a downward spiraling focus of less and less energy, less and less magnetism, and less and less fulfillment. And then he goes on to describe the vrittis, these challenges, these attachments that are there for us. And 
the first one is right knowledge or right conception and then there's wrong knowledge and wrong conception now he precedes that with a sutra says some of these vrittis, these attachments are painful some are less painful he doesn't say they're painless necessarily he says they're less painful but right knowledge is a vritti it's an attachment that's a puzzling thing especially for the mind if you leave it at the mind it isn't going to come around to really having the appreciation that's being offered here what is right knowledge in terms of an attachment as a vritti well it's when we assume what we know to be right is something everyone else should assume as well or that we assume it's the entirety of what's right well throughout the ages including in this very moment you look at that effect in religion in politics in our relationships in everything when we're right where is everyone else are they if they're not in agreement with us not right I mean it's a challenge for all of us because there is in a sense a rightness and we call it often dharma of what's right but dharma is always moving towards that fulfillment that perfection it's coming from where each one of us is at in movement the direction is actually much more critical and real in terms of what's going to happen for us rather than the static position wrong right it's where we're moving and what is that that's moving through us it's energy it's awareness it's consciousness it's feeling and attuning to what is the divine right well some of us may be some distance from the divine right but if we're able to pick it up as where I am I'm able to feel in a very real sense what is right I can also feel that others may not be able to assume that or appreciate that completely and so our care our enveloping energy of opening up to other people's reality for what it is is our compassion it's it's our connectedness to them because if we can feel another person really sincerely moving in the right direction no matter where we are in relationship to this other person's perspective we can embrace that we can more than embrace it we can truly enjoy it we can feel the joy behind that I mean just think of the masters in perspective to us they're there they're everywhere and we seem to be this tiny little sliver of creation and that's the mind's effect that we're here and the divine is there but of course that isn't real and it's not a good perspective to even hold because we are here but we're that divine expression of that expanded infinite consciousness in this moment in this body in this awareness and in my heart 
That's the reality of God within us. And we can always move more and more in that direction. It isn't as if God been there, done that. You know, I remember always this wonderful story that Jyotish and Davy shared when they started our Ananda House um, and Center in San Francisco back in the late 1970s. And they were doing classes at a Unitarian church, uh, meditation classes. And there were a variety of other classes, you know, from macrame to this and that. And here was this meditation class, how to meditate. And they were, I think David was registering people at the table in front of the entrance to the room. And these ladies came by and they said, oh, what, th- what is this class about? And David said, it's how to meditate. And one woman said, oh, we did that already. <laughs> As if, that's it, we've accomplished that. And, and yet, we amusingly laugh at that. But believe me, each one of us probably every day has a similar experience of doing that. Maybe not as obvious in that way. Maybe perhaps a little bit more subtle. But we also just kind of dig our heels in and say, that's fine, I've done that. It's like when we meditate. You know, I've found over the years of teaching meditation that um, it's easy to forget the little preliminary parts of meditation that Yogananda emphasized. You know, like even count measured breathing. And people will say, well, you know, meditation is tough. Or after a number of years, they'll say, I don't seem to be getting as much from it. And then I ask them, well, just take me through what you're doing. And they inevitably have left behind some of these, what they would seem as just simple beginning things for the meditator. But then when I encourage them to reintroduce that, it's remarkable. It really does shift the whole experience of meditation for someone. Because it's getting them into the real experience rather than the thought of what the experience should be. And sometimes it's a simplicity of nurturing, again, the feeling of who we are untouched by emotion from the heart into what's going on. When we can feel that, there's a richness that comes in our lives. There's a depth that starts to surface more. There's a magnetism that grows in us. There's the reality that this is very real and what's been happening is very unreal. I, I was, someone suggested I watch this. Uh, I won't go into details about this, but uh, this little film clip of one of the humorists on TV um, doing a thing of uh, a spoof on that this is the real news. And you can catch what that means. Um, but it was just, it was so... It was just sort of saying, oh, you know, this is good, smart, this is wonderful, everything is great. Well, we don't want to go to that extent where we're just kind of falsifying what's going on. We want to be indeed real. But where is that reality from? From the depths of who we are. And then even the periphery of who we are is affected by that. If we come from, as Yogananda's wonderful phrase, being center everywhere, circumference nowhere, starts to kick in, then that that really means everything in our lives, if we start to center ourselves, continues to have that centeredness with it. It's not like it's here and there's that. No, everything is an extension and openness from our center. It's always in play. 
always in that connectedness. It's always integrating, bringing us to the fullness of who we are. So, you know, this weekend for some of our guests at the Expanding Light here, uh, the weekend program is how to have courage, calmness, and confidence. For all of us, that's a wonderful way to look at the spiritual journey. The, the calmness of being centered, of being really at the core of who we are in the divine. The courage to really seek truth in deepening, deepening ways, to really integrate that experience. And then the confidence to really feel this is real. I know this is real. I am touched by it. My heart is open to it. I know this is what my life is really all about. And so remember the last line of the affirmation, and we'll close with this, the last line of the affirmation for devotion is, what is it? (laughs) So close your eyes. And don't repeat this so much as feel it as your own experience. Feel your heart open, your mind calm and still, and your soul soaring with the consciousness, the vibration, the magnetism behind these words. With the deepest love, I lay my heart at the feet of omnipresence. With the deepest love, I lay my heart at the feet of omnipresence. Om peace.